0: The new coronavirus probably jumped into humans from wild animals. This type of event isn't uncommon. Viruses like Ebola, Hendra, Nipah, and Hanna virus, and even the first SARS virus, which caused an epidemic back in the early 2000s, came from wildlife. In fact, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention estimates that more than half of the infectious diseases affecting humans come from animals.
1: Over the past several months, scientists have been working to determine exactly where SARS-CoV-2 came from, and that's the virus that causes COVID-19. The final word isn't in, and probably won't be for some time, but one likely candidate is bats. Bats are the known or suspected source hosts of many of the viruses Marty just listed, and they're the most likely
0: source of the novel coronavirus. As we continue to zero in on the host, we also need to learn exactly how the virus moved the humans, even if bats are the source of the spillover, where their virus is starting to spill over more into human populations. Is there anything special about bats that makes them especially prone to infect us?
1: In part, bats are problems for us because they and we are mammals. Viruses are simple, so they need specific conditions to infect host cells. Mammalian cells are more like each other than, say, bat and bird cells, but it might go beyond our shared mammalian ancestry. Surprisingly, one key trait of bats that may make them good reservoirs for zoonoses is their ability to fly.
0: On this bonus episode of Big Biology, we talk to Andy Dobson, a disease ecologist at Princeton University who studies epidemics like the current COVID-19 outbreak.
1: We talk about the possible bat origins of the virus, but also spend a lot of time on what life will look like over the next several months as many places across the U.S. and the world start to flatten their curves. One point that Andy emphasizes is that we shouldn't blame wildlife for the coronavirus outbreak. It's human behavior that led to this problem, and it's human behavior that's going to have to change to avoid the next crisis.
0: I'm Marty Martin. And I'm Art Woods. You're listening to Big Biology.
1: So, Andy, we're thrilled to have you on the show and uh, delighted to be able to talk about this, uh, this topic at this time. Um, we want to talk a little bit about uh, just, first of all, evidence for where COVID came from. So what's the source of COVID and and what's the route by which it got into humans?
2: Well, the the evidence, I mean, the best evidence of that obviously is the genetic evidence. And and, and the person who's done the sort of definitive work on that is um, Eddie Holmes, who's at the University of Sydney in Australia. Uh, He and along with uh, Peter Dezak, who'd actually been, as part of the Eco Health Alliance, working with people in China, looking for different viruses, uh, um, mainly in their reservoir hosts, which would be bats, but other things that get sold in the wet food markets. And, and so all the genetic evidence, and they were very good, the Chinese were very good about getting the genetic tissue available and put on the web. All of that points to uh, the coronavirus 19 having bats as their origin there may have been some transient through a pangolin but it mainly looks as if it was bats that were maybe brought into the food market or kept with one of the sort of whole wild food farms uh, and infected animals there that were then sold in the food in that in the market Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm. and just in terms of evidence so how, how do we know it's bats and you know why is there this this sort of hovering question about pangolins uh, why why isn't it a sure thing? It, it's partly because you know most of our understanding of viral
2: diversity comes from looking at humans and domestic livestock. It's only recently that people have been going out and looking at a whole range of other species, but largely because of worries about diseases jumping across. Um, so doing large-scale surveys to see what's the diversity of viruses out there. I mean, we know that one of the big things, what is global biodiversity of free-living species? We don't particularly know that to within a million species. But if each one of those species has 10 to 20 viruses in there, then there's a huge amount of viral biodiversity we don't know enough about. So going and looking for these things, we begin to get the beginnings of a phylogeny for the, the viruses that are pathogens and parasites of the free living things so once we get genetic material we can say that's from that particular branch of the tree that's mainly in bats it's got some odd bits in it that it may have picked up when it got into the wrong host uh, uh, but managed to keep going before getting into something and spilling into humans
1: and so so you're talking about chunks of the genome of the viral genome that come from somewhere else yeah and you know viruses don't have
2: particularly good correction mechanisms such as things like uh, you and I have for, if there's a dodgy bit of genetic tissue in there, it might not be particularly good at clearing
0: it out. Andy, the the surveillance that's happened so far for COVID-19, has that mostly happened from animals that are in these wet markets? Or is some of this information coming from wild populations, wildlife out in the field?
2: I, I think it, it comes from three sources. Uh, I, I mean, you, you could and people have been going around the, the the various wet markets to collect tissue, but obviously people are slightly concerned if you're taking tissue unless you're just sort of surreptitiously ordering some food and then taking a tissue sample with you, which always looks a bit dodgy. People are also going into the wild. Just if you want to get an overview, not everything in the wild gets into the, the whole food markets, the wet food markets. I, I shouldn't call them whole foods, the wet food markets. Um, so getting a broad perspective on how much viral diversity out there requires you to go and sample species in the wild. I mean, people go out and sample birds, bats, small mammals to try and see just how much is out there and, and how similar of what's in the bats to what's in the small mammals, or is it more similar to what's in the birds? And trying to get a, 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 a picture of this because it's, you know trying to understand the diversity of life on this planet is still the greatest scientific challenge of this century. And a huge amount of that biodiversity is the parasites that live in the things that we're focused on.
0: Right. Do we have a sense yet of which bats or which group of bats? I mean, bats are like you're talking about. They're an incredibly diverse group of animals.
2: Yeah. I mean, b- bats are one of the most diverse mammal groups, along with the sort of small mammals. Um, they are essentially divided into two major groups, the, the, the bigger fruit bats, and, and anything that's bigger is more um, uh, appealing for people to eat because you get a meal for a family off it rather than a small snack for a sort of hungry person. So, so it tends to be the larger bats that get eaten, um, but there is as you know as much of a radiation of these parasites across the bats as there is across the small mammals there's a huge diversity of you know some bat families have lots of different species in them some bat families have one or two species in them and the diversity of the parasites in the bats reflects the diversity of bat species within the families
0: hmm. okay so there has been a lot of uh conversation in the scientific literature uh, qu- for quite a while but especially in the last 20 to 25 years about whether bats are special and the way that you articulated that there are certain families of, of bats that are more speciose and in those families there are not surprisingly m- more viruses and, and other microbes to be found It was in fact just a a paper in PNAS today that's got generated a lot of attention on that front but in a broad way are bats special I mean, what evidence do we have that bats Are different than other mammals.
2: Well, uh, as a generality, everything is special in one way or another. uh, um, (laughs) We have our understanding of immunology comes from the distorted perspective of mainly living, having looked at humans. Having looked at mice, because that's a handy laboratory model, so that also reflects a lot what may be going on in other small mammals, but but not necessarily the full diversity of things that are out there. And then the veterinary things we look at, uh, dogs, cats, sheep, horses, pigs. There is a huge amount of mammalian diversity. The, The thing that makes bats unusual is that they fly, which is a sort of trivial statement, but the difference between flying and non-flying is that you have hollow bones to be able to fly. So birds have hollow bones, bats have hollow bones, the uh, cows, sheep, dogs, zebras, elephants have bones that are full of bone marrow. And where you produce a significant amount of your immune cells is in your bone marrow. So if you have hollow bones, how does your immune system work? Or does it work in a different way? And if your immune system is working in a subtly different way, does that mean that it's really good at fighting some types of pathogens, uh, but not very good at fighting others? And if those pathogens that you fight really well as a bat get into something else, do they go around uh, and cause much more damage because the immune system of those other things isn't as well geared up to fight them? And again, it's part of this huge desire to, to understand biological diversity moving away from our human-centric view of it, will give us many more perspectives on how these things evolved and, and how different groups of species interact with each other.
0: So let's, um, I, I don't know how much our audience really loves immunology, but, uh, I mean, I think every, everybody listening knows now that it's one of my favorite things. So if you'll indulge one little nuance about the immune system, that, that's really fascinated me, I guess it's two dimensions though, Andy. Um, it's crazy that we don't know more about bad immune systems, right? I mean, I think you, you know, to represent they fly and they probably don't have uh, parts of their immune system because they don't have places to make it. That, that's true. But my gosh, if these things are conspicuous for causing so much problems for people, it would seem to be the first thing that we would go and look at. So A, why don't we have more of an immunology for bats? And B, this neat thing that we seem to have discovered that their interferon response is not like most other mammal species that we've studied before.
1: Well, I
2: I think there's a couple of things there. Um, When we first... 20 years ago, 25 years ago, when people started getting really worried about emerging diseases, largely as the appearance of HIV, and they realized that there were going to be other things coming across, uh, people began to get concerned about bats. We, we had one person who was a bat immunologist. Uh, I mean, A, they're very hard to keep as laboratory models. Um, mm-hmm. B, you know, there was much more money if you've done the sort of veterinary or medical training to, to, to work on immunology, all the monies in mice and humans and, and, and domestic livestock. You're regarded as an eccentric if you went off and worked on bats, and who's gonna give you money for that? And if you put a grant in, most of the time, people would say, well, it's very interesting, but you know, much better to do this research on a mouse system than on a bat system. So it took a while for people to actually say, actually, there's a big thing different here. You know, People being lucky, if you use your startup money, you don't have to... Uh, um, do a whole NSF grant where they persuade you to work on mice or drosophila. You can actually go and do something creative and new. Uh, so so few people doing that began to discover things that said, actually, we really need to look at this more seriously. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. And one of those was this sort of interferon response, where, as I understand it, multiple bat species now have this kind of high standing level of interferon that you don't usually see. It's, it's one of those uh, proteins, cytokines, it's kind of turned on, when bad guys like viruses show up on the scene, but otherwise it's at relatively low levels.
2: And the other thing about the immune system, I, I always think, you go back to the very early immune immunology lectures I had, is that I always think of it as being most similar to the Tom and Jerry cartoons, where, where, where you have the small mouse that comes in it's a pathogen, and your immune system is the cat that's trying to catch it. And although we think of the viruses, the mouse as being the bad thing, the cat, which is the immune system is doing as much damage to you as the mouse is. Because it's like, what is this thing? I'm trying to get rid of it. But, you know, it's rushing around with a broom breaking things. That's a lot of what we're seeing with COVID. Lots of these people who are getting really sick and, uh, and die, it's because their immune system is overreacting to this weird thing. And now that virus would much rather be in a bat where an immune system that's used to dealing something like that will deal with it. So it's these things that are jumping across that create chaos because the cats, that's the immune system, don't know how to deal with these particular types of mice.
0: Right. Yeah. And there's there's one dimension of, uh, I guess, a paper that you and uh, Kara Brook wrote. I think it was in Trends in Microbiology a few years back um, that that extends off of your arguments about flight that, you know, bats live so much longer than mammals of similar body size. And one of the ways that they do that may be sort of an extension that comes off of their flying. When things fly, they're metabolizing a lot of energy. A lot of that metabolism generates all of these kind of flying vases and broken toasters and all of the other stuff that the the mice are knocking, or the cat's knocking over as it's running around the immune system. So bats seem to have evolved this kind of strong antioxidant protection that's not in other places. So like you say, the viruses can sort of hang out there, do their thing and not wreak the havoc that they seem to be doing with with humans.
2: I mean, same with viruses and any other type of pathogen. it's used to being in a particular type of host. And when it gets into something that it hasn't been in before, it's not particularly sentient, but it's wandering around trying to locate the cues or being driven by the wrong cues to do the wrong thing. Uh, and, and, you know, it's as unhappy as you are for having you in. <laughs> <laughs> I,
1: I want to riff off that idea and and bring up uh, a sort of parallel idea that you talked about in a recent uh, transmission essay, uh, a set of essays put out by the Santa Fe Institute. And you said a lot of interesting things in this, this essay, but you had a, a thing that caught my eye about uh, interspecies transmission of pathogens and, and viruses and the effects of body size and uh, sort of relative rates of, of transmission among species of different body size. And you said, if, if we increase between species transmission to levels where it matches within species transmission, then the small species can use the pathogen to drive the larger species extinct. Uh, so, so what? maybe explain those dynamics and what are the risks for the large bodied species out there?
2: Well, well well that that was I mean well, one of the things I've been interested in for 10 20 years is you know what happens if you have systems where you've got multiple hosts in a single species of pathogen or multiple pathogens in a single species of host? moving beyond our sort of standard way we've learned a lot is looking at one parasite one host type models now if you start looking at shared pathogens that that is the, the sort of general case of what happens when one pathogen jumps from one host species to another. So could we try and understand the dynamics of that? Now, the, the dynamics, one of the things I'm going to get at is that if we look at pathogens in different populations, those could be different populations of different species, or they could be different populations of the same species that are isolated from each other in different ways. So, so, so one of the things I think is important with COVID is it may well be circulating, or once it gets established, it'll circulate in younger people. Initially, we thought without causing much damage, but increasingly we are seeing worrying signs of damage even in young people. The people who are most at risk are the older people. How connected are the younger people to the older people? And Could it continue circulating quite happily in the younger people, but cause catastrophe once it gets into the older people? And and, and so trying to understand how different subpopulations are coupled together, and, and that again gets to one of the things we're seeing at the moment. Once COVID gets into the United States or China, it takes off in the bigger cities And we've seen the sort of tragic things like we're seeing in New York, uh, San Francisco, New Orleans, where you get a huge epidemic in the city and everyone in the rural areas is saying, well, you know, it's not affecting us. Hardly anybody out here is sick. But that's because the rural areas are only weakly coupled to the larger cities. Once it spreads into the rural areas, the same thing will happen. Uh, It'll just take longer and spread more slowly in those rural areas. But then you get the problem is that The cities will begin, they will have created some level of immunity where infections goes down in the city and they're just thinking everybody's fine when it drifts back from the rural areas again. So getting at how different populations and sections of the populations are coupled together is vital to understand the dynamics of this. So in that essay for Santa Fe Institute, I was pointing out that if we look at different species, because different species have different birth and death rates... If you've got a fast birth date rate, you can recover quickly from infection. If you have a slower one, you recover more slowly. But if you get reinfected from the the larger
1: numbers of the smaller species, that can eventually drive you extinct. Yeah, yeah. So the evolutionary dynamics of the of the pathogens in the small species, those evolve characteristics that make them particularly dangerous to the large-bodied, slow-lifestyle species. Yeah. Well, and then the sort of scary
2: analogy to that is the sort of rapid growth of younger people in the human population where they may be able to withstand the disease, will that cause it to spill over into the older people where they don't come back from, from yeah. being infected as well.
0: So you mentioned um, Peter Jacek earlier. So um, there was an article in Politico this morning that said that uh, the NIH pulled money from a collaboration that EcoHealth Alliance had ongoing, I think it was an NIH-supported collaboration with one of the Chinese research institutes in Wuhan. You know anything about this? And I mean, it was on bats, I believe.
2: It was, well, well, the EcoHealth Alliance as part of the PREDICT program has been doing surveys of bat pathogens throughout Southeast Asia and, and other parts of the world, training lots of people, so as so we have more people out there who can do this work of identifying viruses. Um, the labs in Wuhan, as well as several other labs in Wuhan, were obvious people to develop collaborations with, uh, be, because it's in, in an area of China where you can get out into the rural areas, you also have markets you could sample. And the basis of science is building collaborations, particularly across countries, to areas where different people are working on different things. And, and, and so I think Peter had actually been doing a phenomenally good job of developing relationships with the Chinese. He also, when this whole virus first appeared and there was this tendency for people to blame the Chinese, people, Peter got together a group of people who wrote a high-level letter to the Lancet to say, actually, we need to collaborate with China on this. And there are excellent Chinese scientists who had been very good from the beginning of sharing their genetic material and putting it out there for different people around the world to use so as we could begin to develop, A, the vaccines, and B, the serology tests. So the Chinese got on top of that very, very quickly, largely thanks to Peter working with them and developing good relationships with them. So to have him sort of uh, have that funding withdrawn, I I think, is very short-sighted.
0: And the funding withdrawal, I I mean, I I haven't had a lot of funding from NIH myself, but it's fairly atypical from federal agencies this far along in a project to have funding pulled. I mean, that's a pretty specific type of an approach, No,
2: Well, spiteful might be the word you're looking for, but but it's also (laughs) uh, that grant, I think, had ended... And always when you have a grant, you have uh, usually an extra year, you get what's called a no cost extension to spend out whatever funds are still available, usually so as you can put pull things together to apply for your next round of funding. And that's what Peter was using it for. And in fact, he was he had been writing a, a, a grant before this all happened to, to to look at coronaviruses across Southeast Asia, because um, People have consistently felt for about the last decade that if we're gonna get um, a major pandemic, it might well be influenza, but it could also be a coronavirus. And so having that bigger understanding and going to the parts of the world where it was likely to emerge is the most sensible thing you can do. So cutting off that makes us much more susceptible. I mean, this isn't the last virus that's gonna come over. They're coming over about once every five years. Uh, we really need to know what's out there and be better prepared next time. And the way to do that is to have people like Peter going out and doing those surveys. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's a spectacular way for NIH to shoot itself in the other foot.
1: Well, let's let's come back to the situation in the U.S., um, and, and let me preface this by saying we talked to John Drake from University of Georgia about six weeks ago, and um, I was just listening to the intro of that again, and, and Marty and I were summarizing the caseloads and deaths from COVID in the U.S., and at that point there were about 1,500 infections and 40 deaths in the U.S., um, and it was just very strange to hear this because, you know, so much has happened in six weeks and it feels like it's, you know, six months or six years later. And here we are just a few weeks later, you know, a million plus cases and 50,000 plus deaths. So, so what, just from your point of view, what, what happened and what is going to happen going forward and are we successfully flattening the curve?
2: Um, It, it has certainly been a strange spring. Uh, it was literally uh I, I first heads up I got on this was actually the, the uh, 30th of December last year. I, I was actually my son was putting together his annual New Year's Eve party in the house, which is full chaos. So I was uh, quietly sitting literally at this computer looking at things. And there was a, a, a report came through on ProMed that, that actually Peter Dezak had coffee to me and says, this looks weird. And it was a report of this thing in Wuhan. And I thought, huh, that, that is kind of strange. So I sort of printed it out and, and, and kept it. Uh, And then as things began to take off, I just did what any nerd does. I, I just copied down the data coming out every day and was sort of plotting it out for Wuhan then for China and the rest of the world going, this is really not good news. And, and you know, a bunch of us started talking about it. Uh, uh, and then I, I teach my course, which I've for about 20 years now, I, on the ecology and evolution of parasites. And I, I now teach that in Panama. I think Marty took it maybe when I was on I campus. It, yeah. uh, but I always have this sort of lecture where, 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 where I sort of say at the beginning of the course, you know, usually when we teach this course in the spring, there's some global disease outbreak somewhere. It was foot and mouth one year. It was Ovine spongiform encephalitis, it was SARS, it was uh, Zika. And I said, This year it looks really serious, uh, so we should monitor this in the course of the class because I'm worried it might sort of affect your ability to sort of stay on down in Panama for the other two courses. You know, by the last week, we realized that the students were going to have to get out of Panama and, and come back. We were just going to have to come back and probably
1: the university was going to shut down. So it happened really, really quickly. So, so in terms of just responses within the U.S., what, what do you think we've done right and what have we done, done wrong? And, and how important are these university closures, right? I mean, that, that, that to me, that hits home, too, because obviously University of Montana has been been shut down also. But, uh, you know, what, what, what does that do to the dynamics of, of transmission? I, th- I mean,
2: transmission is always contacts between people. Uh, and uh, I guess when I was in, I guess I was in Panama from the twenty fourth of February till the thirteenth of March. The end of the first week when I was there, there was a paper came out in the Lancet saying, uh, from people at Imperial College had been using a model. Uh, that, that then um, Roy Anderson, who trained a lot of those people, published a paper in the Lancet saying, we really have to massively social distance people. If we're going to flatten this epidemic curve out, because the current trajectory suggests it will overwhelm the health services we have available to, to deal with it. So, that I think came out on the Friday. Uh, by the Monday or Tuesday, people realized we were going to have to do something serious about slowing the economy down by way of reducing interactions between people. It's always easy to say we didn't do things quickly enough. But, but, you know, as I said, the 30th of December, we noticed something weird was happening. How, and it's a sort of, how long does it take, you know, me sitting here plotting out data from John Hopkins is coming in, other people? When, when do we get different nervous? And I think people have different levels of nervousness when they begin to think this is something we have to do something about. And when will people believe that we really have to do something? So it was always going to be that different countries were going to react at different speeds. People can blame people later, but I, I don't think that's what we should be thinking about at the moment. It's like, what can we do? How long do we have to sustain that for? And then plainly, we can't completely sacrifice the economy. We have to start thinking of how can we logistically get different groups of people back to work to get things going and a again in a way that we could stop all that if it looks as if the number of cases start going up again and we've got to do that against this sort of background of the different populations that maybe it's gone through the big cities and has moved into rural areas and is spreading more slowly there's different levels of hospital capacity out there we've also taken lots of medical people nurses from the rural areas into the cities they've now got to go back and keep fighting this as the cities come down Um, As with all these things, we have to experiment, but we have to shut down that experiment of getting things going again if it just increases the scale of the epidemic again. Yeah, yeah. You know, in in your dream world, you'd want to be like New Zealand to have done everything really efficiently, have closed it down and say, now we're now getting less than one case a day. With luck, we will get rid of it within New Zealand within a month but then what does New Zealand do about reconnecting itself to the rest of the
0: mm-hmm. world? Andy, what do you think um, what's life going to be like over the next six weeks? And, I mean, maybe this this whole this talk that we constantly hear about that is going to go away in the summer and then maybe it's going to come back with a vengeance in the fall.
2: No, well, I mean, the perception that this would go away in the summer I think comes from a perception that influenza and the common cold tend to die back in the summer. Uh, Similarly measles which is the sort of poster child for all uh, the the, 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 the diseases like this have very strong seasonal cycles. Those seasonal cycles are driven as much by the school terms as anything else because it's kids getting together that give the system a kick out the r and make everything much much, much bigger. For you to have seasonality though, you have to have high levels of herd immunity in the first place. So so to get any pronounced seasonal signal, you have to have lots of people uh, immune. So it's suddenly an increase in the numbers of susceptibles meeting together, usually new kids starting school or mixing with different kids they haven't mixed with before that give you that seasonal signal. If you haven't got herd immunity, you're not really going to see a seasonal signal because having a massive number of susceptible people out there, the epidemic is just going to keep growing and growing. So I think more what we're going to see is this moving out from the big cities and into large towns, cities in more areas away from the coast and then into rural areas. So, so, so it's just going to keep going and going. So it's like summer will appear, but we're not – the diminishment we're going to see is a flattening out spatially across the U.S. with different little epidemics all sort of coupled together.
0: And the appearance of herd immunity, I mean, we're we're quite a ways from anything like that. Um, Usually 60 to 70 percent of a population would have to be immune for that to be – effective correct
2: yes we, we we think it will be i mean people's estimates of r0 the, the the rate of spread of the disease that gives you a relatively good rule of thumb for, for the what the levels of herd immunity would be so so if r naught is about two then it's one minus one over two so 50 percent of people would give you herd immunity if, if r0 is four then it's one minus one over four which is like 75 percent of uh, 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 people that also assumes that immunity lasts forever like it does for measles. Um, you know, If it lasts for the rest of your life, then that's good. Now you've got herd immunity where you can control the disease. We don't know how long herd immunity, or how long immunity to people lasts for this. So if the immunity lasts for a year, then this thing will keep circulating and people will keep getting it again. If we have a vaccine, which we hope we will eventually get, but that vaccine, Immunity will probably only last for a year. So people will have to be vaccinated every year.
1: Are are you optimistic about vaccine development? I mean, do you think we have one on the horizon within some reasonable time frame?
2: Well, when I first started out doing this, uh, HIV appeared. And we were told when HIV appeared, we'll have a vaccine in two years. And then it was like four years. And then it was like eight years. We haven't got an HIV vaccine. I had colleagues who spend their whole career working on a malaria vaccine. We don't have a malaria vaccine this but those are more complicated pathogens right right <laughs> uh, there are hundreds of drug companies will tell you we'll have a vaccine within a year uh but you know we we've only ever eradicated two diseases with vaccines uh smallpox and rinderpest but one while you know one domestic livestock pathogen one human pathogen uh the original vaccines for both of those were developed in the 1760s. Uh, so, time from initial <laughs> vaccine trial to eradication was 250 years, plus or minus
1: two years for those two things. So, so what about the biology of the pathogens uh, affects how easy it is to get a vaccine developed?
0: Um,
1: uh, it, it's a mix of, of of the delightful natural history uh,
2: of the you know which sites. Is it going to and, and uh, which as which parts of the immune system is it switching on. I personally think think the, the physical size, which correlates massively with the genome size for, for, for pathogens, is important. The bigger it is, the 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 harder it is to produce a vaccine. But the the other side of that is the bigger it is maybe the easier it is to produce a treatment because you've got something you can physically hit. And, you know, so washing your hands is really effective against this thing because it's a big chunky thing that has this sort of globular outside which just melts when you, you know, when exposed to sort of soapy water. So, so although there's lots of talk of a vaccine, I, I actually think we should be having certainly as much discussion of potential treatments. Okay, go Not the least, because if you come up with a vaccine, who's going to do a voluntary vaccine trial unless you've got a treatment to cure them once you, you know, half the people get given the the, the pathogen, half of them, and you give them the vaccine, Um, you need to know you can treat them if they get sick from the vaccine, or you've got to give them the disease and hope the vaccine is protecting them. So you need some form of treatment. So going for a treatment first may be as powerful a way to go as going for a vaccine.
0: Hmm. And are there treatments that, of which you're aware that sort of seem suitable, promising if we want to use a vaccine or just in general?
2: I, I, I mean, there's plainly going to be lots of people working on this. I, the, the Chinese, again, I, I, I thought, um, even when I was still down in Panama, so that would be the very beginning of March, just looked at every single compound that they had uh, and, and tried it against this thing in cell culture. So, so that sort of shotgun approach might well turn up something um, the and I think you know other nations should be doing similar things we, we as with all these things we're seeing sort of strange sort of correlations there's this thing that people are noticing in African countries that uh, people who've had the BCG examination which um, vaccination uh, which some countries still do routinely particularly if TB is a problem um, People who've had the BCG uh, vaccination don't seem to be as susceptible to COVID as other people. But, but that seems to be correlative evidence rather than any definitive tests that people have done. But if it is something like that, then scaling up vaccine production for that would be good. Because the other problem we have with the vaccine is the world has a finite vaccine production capability. If we suddenly had a vaccine for COVID and we had to vaccinate 9 billion people every year, our ability to produce influenza vaccines, measles vaccines and other vaccines would plummet. So so, we're going to need to invest in vaccine making companies and the technology to make vaccines more efficiently. So growing things up in chicken's eggs is a slow way to cure a disease? Have we got enough chickens to make that many eggs to grow that many vaccines in is is a non-trivial problem.
0: Yeah. Um, So maybe that's a a good uh, transition, an opportunity for a transmission to the, what does the world look like in the near future once we start to get, either we start to get COVID under control or we're with it long enough that we just have to change the, the ways that we're doing things. I mean, we're not going to be able to social distance to the extent that we are now?
2: I, 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 I the, the optimist in me thinks, oh, maybe we'll be through this in a year, 18 months' time. But the sort of pragmatist in me he says, no, actually, we, I think we've really got to rethink lots of the way in which people socialize, which is a huge effect of how the economy is going to work. We've certainly got to prepare much more strongly against this type of thing happening again, both in terms of knowing more about what's out there, stopping the processes that allow things to come across, which which is a mixture of closing down the food trade in species we really shouldn't be eating. Uh, I mean, you can't, I think this is an exaggeration to say we need to close the wet markets. It's a bit like saying, we need to close the Trenton Farmers Market where I go every week in New Jersey for my vegetables. Right. That's effectively a wet market in New Jersey because it sells fish. Most people in China like to have fresh fish, fresh vegetables. That's the definition of a wet market. So you can't close down people's access to fresh food. That is totally bonkers. But we need to close down the aspects that are dealing with trade in wildlife that's potentially harmful to human health the other thing you have to do is go back up the pipeline from there. Most of these pathogens are coming from areas of broad scale deforestation where people are going in and getting exposed to that things and then coming into town sick with things. So we have to rescale what we're going to do about global deforestation. But but that would have multiple other benefits. So that's one aspect imagine. of the world that's got to change. And then we have to learn. Maybe people will find that actually working from home is even nicer than working in an office and the economy could work quite well like that. Much harder to teach students or kids at school. That way you have to find some way of teaching people that's both safe for the children and safe for the people
1: teaching them. It seems like you know somebody or some organizations or perhaps some governments are going to decide that bats themselves are too dangerous and that we should do something to you know eradicate one or more species of of bats What, what would you say to people who make that argument bats are massively bringing more benefits to humans
2: than they are causing harm this problem with this virus emerging isn't a problem with the bats it's a problem with people being stupid and people being stupid at every chain along the way in, in, in many ways. So so having a better understanding of the way the natural world works and interfering in in less of a, a, a belligerent and less edifying way would, would really make things much better. Um, I, I don't, absolutely, it would be, it is not to say impossible to, to, to reduce the number of bats out there, but just totally stupid and totally counterproductive. And you know, it's not necessarily true that the next pathogen that'll come along in three to five years will come from a bat. It's just as likely yeah, it could be an influenza that comes from ducks. Are we gonna eradicate all the world's ducks? Uh, it could be another vector-borne disease like Zika. Though the, the potential for a vector-borne disease to take off isn't as big as it is for one of these directly transmitted diseases.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, much better to learn how to manage the world you know, and have those pathogens stay in different parts of it and maybe have humans spend less time in those other parts of it than for us to think we know anything about managing as complex a system as the natural world.
0: Um, you mentioned a minute ago, Andy, that one of the really important things going forward is, is sur- surveillance, looking for the next big one. And the the gripe somewhat reasonably has been in the past that it's it's really difficult and it's very expensive to do it I mean exhaustively for sure but even well so what what kind of perspective what advice maybe do you have for how we look for the next zoonotic threat
2: I think the expense you know the, the relative cost of spending 50 to 100 million a year on programs that are training up people to be expert on tropical diseases versus the 5 to 10 trillion dollars we've lost this year already it, it is trivial uh, uh, mm-hmm. so, so so, the surveillance, you, you have the capacity building benefits. And I, I, I think part of the criticism of the, of the surveillance stems from the fact that people said, we'll be able to identify the next disease. We, we, we won't be able to do that. And we will miss things. Uh, uh, I mean, think of HIV. If you'd gone and taken this virus out of a monkey, you put it in people. Nobody gets sick for five or ten years. You should, you wouldn't be worried about that. Right. And then when it comes across and you realize how it works, boom, you realize that could have halved the population of Africa. It was such an unpleasant pathogen. It also tells you, you know, yeah, these things aren't produced by weird people who hate society with lab coats behind the scenes because the smartest ones are so much smarter than the people's perception that we make something really nasty and it kills people really quickly. You don't do it that way. You make something that operates really slowly. Um, the, 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 the other side to that is you don't want to predict exactly what the next one is. You want to do this thing of having a huge genetic library of what the different things are that are out there to begin to get some understanding of how they function. Because, you know, once we've got the genetics, we don't really know which ones are going to be pathological, which ones are going to, how long they're going to transmit for, whether they're going to show symptoms. We haven't got the genetic machinery to do that. But when something appears, as happened this time, we need a big enough library to say, this thing is from that type of species, from that particular region. What were we doing in that region that caused this to come across? Because we need to stop doing that in that region. So the surveillance is building up that library, which is knowledge. Mm -hmm. And eventually, if we're around long enough, and it won't be tomorrow, and it won't be this decade, we'll we'll have the genetic techniques to be able to say, actually, those set of uh, um, genetic signatures mean this is likely to be a much nastier pathogen than that. In another 50 years, we'll be able to say, oh, those genetic things mean the incubation thing of time of that's going to be about two days, three days, four days. But that's a long, long way down the pipeline. So better to build up that library now.
1: It's been a total thrill to talk to you, Andy. This is, uh, I think, a good place to stop. Um, But we also like to ask at the very end, just if there's anything else you'd like to say, anything we didn't cover that's on your mind.
2: Um, Well, it's also been a great pleasure to talk with with, with both of you. It's... um, the thing that constantly is in the back of my mind whenever we talk about this, this is something that we knew was gonna happen. Uh, uh, And scientists sort of warned against and said, "You know, we need to prepare ourselves for things like this. We've been saying exactly the same thing about climate change. And that's as big a worry still as this. Scientists, we have many, many more people, scientists working on climate change than this. And we all know that that is equally bigger problem it may come in more slowly, but it's going to be just as devastating as this is. So having the politicians listen a bit more to the scientists isn't going to harm at all.
1: This is the second episode we've released about the new coronavirus. In episode 38, we talked to John Drake at the University of Georgia about the challenges of modeling the new disease and some of the best ways to slow down its spread.
0: If you like this episode, you might also wanna check out our conversations with disease ecologist Barbara Hahn in episode five and our chat with Felicia Keesing and Rick Osfeld in episode 32. Those shows too cover diseases we get from wildlife.
1: We also wanna remind you that we're in the middle of a fun drive for season three. We know it's a tough time to ask, but if you can, we really need your support. You can make a one-time donation on our webpage, www.bigbiology.org, or a recurring donation through our Patreon page, patreon.com bigbio.
0: Patrons also get to submit questions for our guests and get access to show notes and extra audio. If you can't afford to donate money right now, instead, please go to iTunes and give us a rating or share Big Biology with your friends over social media.
1: Thanks to Matt Blois for producing this episode. Mike Levine manages our social media accounts and produces the student spotlights, and Dana Baxter helps with background research. As always, Steve Lane manages the website.
0: Thanks to the College of Public Health at the University of South Florida and the Colleges of Humanities and Sciences at the University of Montana for support.
1: Music on the episode is from Pottington Bear.